welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We hope that you are having a very blessed day. You can catch us right here on your favorite Catholic radio station at the same time each week. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. I've even asked Alexa to help find the Bridge Builder podcast, and Alexa, she, she does it. Each week in the Bridge Builder show, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment, and you can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org and then see... If we raise those in our mailbag segment, you can tune in and and check it out. It wouldn't be the Bridge Builder program if we didn't provide you with practical ways to bring the faith into the public life. You can lay the bricks that build the bridges between faith and public life. In today's episode, we're talking about school choice, anti-Catholic Blaine amendments, and the recent Supreme Court ruling in the Espinosa case that allows for religious schools greater participation in government programs that are open to everyone. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about the Paycheck Protection Program and why churches are able to access government COVID relief funding. And finally, stick around for the Bricklayer segment where we'll be talking about the upcoming anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the lessons those have for us today. We're now blessed to be joined on the line by Ray DeManico. He is a senior fellow and director of education policy at the Manhattan Institute. He began his career in research positions in the New York City school system and has taught graduate-level courses in educational research and policy analysis. He holds a master's in public policy from the University of California at Berkeley. Welcome to the program. It's Thanks for joining us, Mr. DeMonico. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in education policy. Particularly in, in Catholic education policies, and in, in, in some way I was born to it. I'm a product of uh, 12 years of Catholic education in New York City. Uh, you know, I'm of an age when that's what uh, almost all Catholic families did, was send their children to, to uh, Catholic schools. Uh, you know, I, w- I was successful in school. I, I ended up in, in graduate school studying public policy and very concerned about issues of poverty and how the government and public policy could help raise people from different difficult uh, situations. And at the time I was in in school, there was a lot of focus on education, both public and private, as the means of raising people out of poverty. So that's what drew me to education policy. Uh, In the late 1970s, when I was in graduate school, there had been a long period of conflict in the country around desegregating schools. Schools in the South had been racially segregated. In the North, it was a different story, but there was a lot of contention about that. And it was at that point that I learned that the type of schools that I had attended, uh, inner-city Catholic schools, had become a viable alternative and a desirable alternative for many low-income and African-American families who were seeking alternatives to the public schools, which they felt were not serving their needs. So that began my my professional interest in in Catholic education and its relationship to social policy. I think a lot of people understand that education is a key uh, ingredient in creating a ladder out of poverty. Uh, But what what blessings and benefits in particular, uh, you mentioned Catholic schools, how are they doing it in a more unique way that 
perhaps serves, uh, helps close that achievement gap that we always hear about between white students and students of color? Right. By their very nature, Catholic, and, and I, I would say parenthetically, other religious schools as well, uh, have some advantages. One, uh, for the most part, they are mission-driven. The, uh, Catholic, Catholic schools have a long, long history. They are often administered or at least were established by religious orders that were established centuries ago. Uh, that, that, that sense of mission, that charism that, that the orders have carry over into how they think about school. They see the whole child. They see, they see not, when, when they look at their school children, they're not just looking at test scores or data or measurable things about the child. They're really not seeing the child's family income or their background. They're seeing, they're seeing a child of God. They're seeing the human value in each child. So that, that sense of mission, that sense of valuing every life, I think is very important and very key to the success of Catholic religious schools. Oftentimes opponents of school choice who engage the issue of the achievement gap say that the disparities are already present uh, before a child reaches a school age and that those are the you know things broken families, other challenges in the home and the community, uh, uh, mental health supports, lack of nutrition, and that good public policy can only do so much and that public schools don't increase the achievement gap but they stabilize it and religious schools aren't uh, much better at, at closing that achievement gap, and that what we need is more early childhood education and not school choice. How would you respond to some of those arguments? So there's no doubt that, that individual children come to school, whether it's public, private, or religious, or charter school, with, with uh, variation in background, variation in, in their interests, their willingness to engage in schooling, in some cases even their abilities. Any, any person who has a large family or large extended family knows that not every individual child is the same. Siblings can differ. Uh, you know, one, one uh, child might be an A student and, and, and another might struggle just to, to, to get along. I think that the, the difference is, once again, the sense of mission and the dedication to the value of each human life is what drives Catholic schools not to use those differences as an excuse. Okay? I think the reason that many low-income people have sought religious schools, Catholic schools, as an alternative, say, to their neighborhood public school is that they felt that the, that the neighborhood school, the public school, had given up on children like theirs. All they see is the poverty or you know, the, the circumstances. Catholic schools have always served a low-income and largely immigrant population. Uh, my my father was the, was the son of immigrants who came from Italy, and, and you know he attended Catholic schools in the in the 1920s. So the Catholic schools have always been this this vehicle, particularly in large cities, where immigrant kids from non-English speaking families have sort of you know have gotten their education, and also by the way been inculcated with American values. You know, it was it was a, it was a bridge for for immigrant communities to to bring their kids here, and and have them learn not only the skills but the values that they need to succeed in our society. It seems that 
uh, it's, that's consistent with our conviction here that the religious schools and particularly Catholic schools can address some of those challenges that uh, are in place in the home and that kids do bring to school because of the mission, because of the values, because of the emotional supports, things that you might not be able to access in uh, public schools. But the fad, you know, the, the, the fad here and all the rage here is early childhood ed. So can you say a little bit more about uh, the promises or perhaps the perils of early childhood education. I think some folks are concerned that taking kids out of the home too early and putting them school in schooling uh, can be a detrimental value as well. Uh, sure. The, the first thing I'll speak about is this, this concept of fad. That's another advantage that Catholic schools have. Because they are rooted in a history, um, they're often better at resisting fads where sometimes... Uh, you know, public schools. And by the way, I have great respect for people who work in, in public schools. It's a very difficult job, but sometimes they get sort of whipsawed around as their administrators or school boards are chasing the fad of the of the year or or recent years. But on on the question of early childhood uh, education uh, and, and uh, you know home care uh, or child care outside of the home. Uh, a lot of uh, communities have adopted this. In, in New York City, where I do a lot of my work, they've adopted universal pre-kindergarten for four-year-olds. They're trying to expand it to three-year-olds. It is certainly popular amongst many parents, particularly if both parents are working or if it's a single parent and they need that child care. The, the research evidence on the, the impact that a year of education, say at age four, pre-kindergarten, is going to have over the long term is, is, uh, is muted. Now, people will argue that it shows a benefit, but the, the research studies are very limited here. They've been, they, they've been conducted on very small samples of students uh, quite a number of decades ago, by the way. And they're also, the, the, the programs which are cited as evidence that early childhood is the key, and many, many people will make that claim, are, are based on pilot programs, one in Michigan, one, one elsewhere, which were, were A, incredibly small, B, incredibly well-funded, and almost were were you know, sort of perfectly designed programs. In all of public policy, the big challenge is taking an individual program, like say a Head Start or an early childhood program for a group of students, say in a particular city, and maybe you see some success in that. And, and the challenge is when you try and expand that statewide, it often fails. Okay, and so the the experiment that children are being put through today is that folks have observed that small, well-designed early childhood programs seem to have a positive effect, but we don't know yet if that is going to carry over to a citywide or countywide or statewide program. And so when we're looking at those, we don't yet know whether this is actually going to uh to, to be the, the panacea that some people seem to think that it is. My own experience is quality always suffers when you go from a tightly controlled and, and well-designed program to all of a sudden throwing money and saying, we're going to do this across the state, for example. 
It seems like education policy is one area that's more prone to fads and the latest theories than other fields. I remember my own experience growing up in public schools here in Minnesota that, you know, one year it was outcome-based education. They ditched that, went back to a traditional model, and then it was some new theory, and then we'd have, you know, scholars in and out treating us like guinea pigs, it seemed like. Why is it the case that, you know, especially when it comes to uh, you know, education, which people have been doing for thousands of years, it, it's it, that there's the education policy industry and schools are so prone to be embracing new fads and theories and then throwing them out the next week. I, th- I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is because for 50 years in our country, uh, uh, public policy and the people who make public policy, our government leaders, have placed an awfully big job on the schools and on educators. They, they have expected for, for decades for the schools to be the answer to poverty and all of the ills. So, you know, educators, public school educators, often find themselves in the position of uh, being criticized for not accomplishing this, this incredibly uh, difficult, difficult job. And I think that creates an environment in which they're looking for perhaps easy, easier solutions. The other thing that's true, and, and this is important in the, about the value of private and religious schools, is that no schooling is values neutral. That's what some people, those who are opposed to religious education, would have us believe, that public schools are value neutral. That's not true. They're, they, they are promoting their own values, and sometimes those values are at variance with what, you know, the home or the family uh, would want. That's, that's particularly true in the current environment. Our country's going through a moment because of, you know, uh, racial prejudice and, uh, you know, uh, tragic deaths at the, at the hands of police officers, and there's a whole conversation of, that's going on now. Much of that is necessary, but unfortunately, some of that has gone to the point now in, in education circles, the latest Fed seems to be to argue that basic things, hard work or academic achievement are somehow bad, that they are inherently racist. Uh, I've done a lot of work in low-income communities of color. Uh, I don't know any family uh, that is going to argue that they don't want their child to achieve, and they don't want their child to work hard in order to achieve. But those very basic values are now being uh, brought under attack in, in public education debates. We're joined on the line today on The Bridge Builder by Ray DeManico. He is Senior Fellow and Director of Education Policy at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, Ray, turning then to the uh, issue of uh, Blaine amendments and the recent Espinoza ruling at the Supreme Court, which held that uh, Blaine amendments in state constitutions could not bar the participation of religious schools and school choice programs and other public benefit programs available to non-religious entities. What are the implications of this ruling? You've written uh, quite a bit about this in recent weeks. Right. I think I think this is a, a very important ruling on the on the part of the Supreme Court. I, I believe that they got it uh, exactly right. The uh, the essence of the court's ruling here is that a state because education is a function of the states in our system, a state is not required to support private schools, 
But if they choose to support private schools, they cannot exclude religious schools from that support. And that's what the Blaine Amendments were about. They were passed uh, in the uh, 19th century in a, in a time of anti-immigrant fervor in the country. At that time, the immigrants were largely Catholic. There was anti-Catholic bias. So 37 states adopted these amendments that forbade the uh, flow of any public money into religious schools. And by that, they meant Catholic schools. They, we were the target back then. So the court has finally said that that is not allowable. This opens up a lot of new opportunities to uh, expand uh, parental choice in schools. It also creates an opportunity to perhaps find ways to save what is left of the Catholic education system. Unfortunately, that system has been declined for a long, long time. Many schools have closed. Enrollment is way down, but we, there's still a significant presence in the country. So, you know, there will be many more fights in the courts about about this issue and, and interpreting this issue. But the, the basic fact remains that a state cannot exclude religious schools from any aid to uh, private schools. A question that will come up uh, very, very quickly in this discussion is the issue of charter schools. Okay, charter schools are a form of public schools, but some would argue that they are run by private nonprofits. And at some point in some state, someone will bring a case and argue that, uh, I know in my own state of New York, it's true in many states, religious organizations are not allowed to apply to start a charter school. But that may come under challenge because of this Espinoza ruling. I think we would welcome that challenge. Why should uh, you know, a community organization or a cultural institution be allowed to start a charter school, but not a religious organization or order? So I think it creates a lot of opportunity. Hopefully, we will also see those states which have either vouchers or tuition tax credits. Uh, we'll, we'll see an expansion of those due to the Espinosa ruling. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a very important step forward for, for those of us who are concerned about Catholic and religious schools. You mentioned Catholic school closures, and many uh, much of that right now is being driven by the challenges related to COVID-19. And concurrently, Congress is debating a fourth COVID stimulus package, and school funding is at the center of that discussion. Why should Catholic schools and other religious schools be allowed to participate in those government funding programs? Uh, it's critical that Catholic and other religious schools be allowed to participate in that for a couple of reasons. One is we are already seeing an impact uh, across the country. I think over 90 Catholic schools alone have closed just in the last few months in the New York City area. Just at the end of June, uh, 20 schools were announced for closure. We can't afford to be losing these schools. They're a val value, valuable asset in our in our communities. But think about why the schools are in trouble right now because of the COVID pandemic. Out of necessity, the, the government, public policy, has forced a shutdown of the economy. And so many, many people are out of work. Um, you know, many businesses have slowed down. And of course, private schools and religious schools, Catholic schools, need to charge tuition and keep their doors open. And what they were finding as we got closer to the end of the school year in June is that many parents were saying to them, you know, we don't know that we can afford tuition 
in the fall. So because of this government action to shut down the economy and to not to deny people uh, the opportunity to make a living, however important that was for health reasons, people can argue about that, but, but it was important, uh, because of that action now, people cannot, many people cannot afford to pay their tuition, so we're seeing school closures. Advocacy that I've observed and what people are pushing for is based on, uh, you know, doing something for these schools in this emergency. We'll have we'll have a larger debate and a longer debate when this is over about things like vouchers and ongoing support. But for right now, it's critical that this this emergency aid that is being provided or will be provided to public schools and charter schools also include religious schools. This is this is a one time thing. It's an extraordinary set of circumstances, and there's no reason that children should be disrupted because they're in private or religious schools or that or that those schools should close because of this this unique situation. Thanks for unpacking that for us. We've got time for one more question. Oftentimes we refer to Catholic schools as private schools, but uh, non-public schools, they, they actually have a very public function and uh, serving the community. What impact will it have on the broader community if we continue to see uh, the closure of Catholic and other religious schools? Well, uh, very quickly, uh, it would if we the Catholic school every Catholic school that we lose is one less opportunity for uh, children to in, in neighborhoods that are perhaps underserved by the public schools. It's one less opportunity for them to get a decent education. Secondly, there's a huge uh, uh, debate in society about the values we want to see. Uh, inculcated in our in our students, and so uh, we we at the institute believe in educational pluralism. We think there should be many different types of schools so that families have the right and the ability to choose schools that reflect their most deeply held values. And that is lost every time we lose uh, a Catholic school. And then finally, there's been research out of Chicago. Some professors at Notre Dame have, have observed that the presence of a Catholic school in a low-income urban community often is a stabilizing influence. Unfortunately, in the years of their study, Chicago had to close many Catholic schools, and these researchers looked into that, and they found things like crime and disorder went up in the surrounding neighborhoods after the Catholic school closed. So they're, they're often anchors in their community, you know, and they often serve more than an educational function, and that will be lost if we, if we lose these schools. Sobering thoughts indeed. We've been blessed to be joined today by Ray DeManico. He is Senior Fellow and Director of Education Policy at the Manhattan Institute. Where can we find more information about your writing and the work of the Manhattan Institute? Uh, it's all on the Manhattan Institute website. If, if you search on that, uh, you'll see many reports. We've done a lot on, on private and religious schools and school choice in general, and it's all available there. So Google Manhattan Institute, and uh, we'll certainly have a link on our show page. Uh, Ray DeManico, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. (music) 
Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, so earlier this summer, the Associated Associated Press published an article regarding the Paycheck Protection Program, and it stated, The U.S. Roman Catholic Church used a special and unprecedented exemption from federal rules to amass at least $1.4 billion in taxpayer-backed coronavirus aid. One of our listeners asked, is this true? If so, is there any reason churches should not have access to those loans to keep their staff employed? Well, that's a good question. And uh, as the churches, as churches and other organizations had to respond to the public health crisis created by COVID-19, then it certainly is the case that they should be part of the solution as well. And no doubt um, churches were impacted by COVID-19. We are guest on today's show highlighted how it's impacted schools in terms of their mitigation of the public health crisis, but also uh, salaries, revenues, uh, job losses. These of all things, things impact donations. We had to shut down churches, uh, close down churches uh, for months at a time. So all these things had an impact and churches and Catholic schools and other Catholic organizations are vital to our communities. They're not just serving Catholics, but they serve the broader community as well. And they have employees who help further that mission. And so the purpose of the Paycheck Protection Program was to protect employees, and the Catholic Church has employees. And so from that standpoint, it's absolutely appropriate that nonprofit employers, including churches, should be able to participate. Now, the supposedly unprecedented exemption that we had uh, really spoke to the reality that the loans were limited to organizations that had 500 or fewer employees. And what we didn't want to happen was to have all the employees of the Catholic Church in a diocese, for example, be included together when, in fact, each parish is a separate corporate entity, the diocese is a corporate entity. So we made sure that each parish and entity would count as its own site, and thus each one would be eligible for loans. And uh, you should be proud of your advocates in Washington here uh, in the states that we were able to advocate in an effective way so that the churches and our schools would have access to those important loans that preserve jobs, that preserve the mission, and did so without imposing mandates or coming with a lot of strings attached either, too. So uh, really a a great uh, moment for the church's advocacy in participating in those programs and saving the important jobs of those who serve our parishes and those who serve our communities. Wonderful. Thanks for kind of breaking that down and helping us understand those big headlines a little bit better. Um, We're always talking about how to build bridges between faith and public life, how to become a better disciple when it comes to politics. What have you got in this week's bricklayer segment? How can people start laying the bricks to build that bridge between faith and politics? Well, it might seem like something in the distant past and not really relevant today, but it's what we marked the 75th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and August 9th when atomic weapons caused untold death and suffering. Now, so often people say, well, that ended the war, and so therefore the ends justifies the means, but the bombing of innocent civilian populations can never be justified. So the, that's consequentialist moral theory, and the church has always rejected that. And these days, ahead of the anniversary, uh, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on International Justice and Peace is calling on Catholics in the U.S. to renew their commitment to pray and work for an end to nuclear weapons. Pope Francis is continuing a long history of Catholic teaching and calling for the elimination of indiscriminate and disproportionate weapons of mass destruction. 
Pope St. John XXIII, his predecessor, called for a global ban on nuclear weapons in 1963, and subsequent popes have reiterated this goal. Pope Francis says a world without nuclear weapons is possible and necessary. In 1993, the U.S. bishops supported a ban on U.S. nuclear testing. You can get involved by visiting www.usccb.org nuclear, where you'll find prayers, a link for the film Nuclear Tipping Point, and a study guide that further explores the Catholic response to nuclear weapons. Also, by visiting usccb.org nuclear, you will find a link to send a message to Congress urging our senators and representatives to work for the extension of the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty between the U.S. and Russia, which is set to expire in February of 2021. That's all the time we have for today on the Bridge Builder Podcast. Listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your comments or questions to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. You can be a sponsor of the Bridge Builder program as well. It's a great way to bring your company or organization to more listeners and let them know that you support bringing the Catholic faith into public life. For sponsorship opportunities, again, you can visit us at show or email us at show at mncatholic.org. Finally, catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder. Go to mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Today was a great example of some of the outstanding and informative guests that we have had on The Bridge Builder program. And I think we've got dozens now of past programs that you can catch up on on all kinds of important and interesting topics. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening to The Bridge Builder. Have a blessed day.